Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hi team, Oliver here. This week I released the interview that I did with Ryan Johnson, CEO and founder of Cul-de-Sac, over on the Infinite Block. This is an interview I have long wanted to do. As you can hear, Ryan is building the first micromobility-focused real estate development in the US and has raised a decent whack of capital to build a company that will make these more common. Reflecting on the interview, I'm struck by the figure he offers. The majority of people in the US want to live in neighborhoods that are walkable, but only 8% do. As we explore the rise of micromobility and the implications it will have on things like zoning, parking, housing, and cities, I think what Ryan is doing is super important and something that I hope is copied all over. I'm really looking forward to circling back on him and the team in the years to come. If you don't know already, The Infinite Block is a podcast about the intersection of tech, the social contract, and cities, using the lens of disruptive innovations like micromobility and crypto to understand how cities of the future will work in an age of declining trust and agility in governments. We really hope you come and check out the work that we're doing over there. But for now, here's Ryan. Let's go. And welcome back to the Infinite Block. I have with us today, Ryan Johnson. How are you going, Ryan? Doing well. Awesome. Hey, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I'm so stoked. Ever since I've seen what Cul-de-Sac was kind of up to, I've been wanting to have you on a podcast. And the Infinite Block yeah. kind of feels like the most appropriate one now that we're obviously talking about wider stuff than just micromobility. We're talking about cities, even this is a micromobility first development. So for the folks who are kind of new to this and don't necessarily know a cul-de-sac beyond the immediate name of a cul-de-sac they might not know what are you trying to build and why does it matter yeah so cul-de-sac we build cities for people not cars the majority of the u.s wants to live in a walkable neighborhood but only eight percent does and we're changing that our vision is to build the first car-free city in the u.s and we're starting with the first car-free neighborhood built from scratch in the u.s and that's called cul-de-sac tempe and it's 1,000 residents that don't have cars or parking and it opens this year And as far as I understand, it would be more of a village, like a European style village. Would that be an appropriate way to describe it? I don't know if I have the right words for describing it in the US. Yeah, it's two to three story buildings that are built at a human scale. And it has 55% landscaped space. It also has retail. It has a restaurant, a grocery store, coffee shop, a co-working space, a bike store. Oh, amazing. That That sounds really dope. The thing that I kind of came to is like, you don't start trying to build the first car-free city in the US from a standing start. So when I was digging into it, it's like your background is so fascinating and and like obviously very provides you with the context of how to do it. I'd love to just talk through that. So what did you even study? What was the sort of your thought process for when you were like a young person thinking about starting to try and get into your career? Yeah. So I grew up in Phoenix, third generation Phoenician and thought it was a great place to grow up. It was the only place that I knew. And my grandfather was an engineer, the train kind, not the software kind. Yep. And when I, was, when I was 14, he hired me to build a website for plans for building light rail and trains in Phoenix, which has happened since then. Oh, and wow. I call that my first startup. Yeah. For college, I was deciding between MIT, where it would have been 150000 in debt, yep. 
or the University of Arizona, where I had a, a full ride plus 50,000 on top. Yeah. And I chose the latter. And two things happened at U of A. The first is that part of the scholarship was to go abroad. And so I quickly went to 60 countries and I've worked in a handful. And the first place for me that changed my worldview was Budapest, where I said, yep. wow, there's much better ways to build a city than sprawl. And there was great transportation to get around where there's retail, there's density, there's a sense of community and thoughtful architecture. And that launched a passion for cities. And so after college, I spent a decade or so working in transportation with trains and helicopters and buses, including for the New York MTA. Awesome. You were working for the MTA, you did consulting, you did a combination of You then subsequently ended up going into tech. So like, talk me through the, like, the jump from MTA into saying, I want to go and work on tech. Yeah. The second thing that happened from doing the scholarship at U of A is that I met a friend and we pooled our scholarship money together and used that as the seed capital to build a real estate business. So yep. we built a portfolio of 60 bedrooms or so, learning how to buy, sell, renovate, and property manage. And that friend's name is Eric Wu. And uh, after the, the decade or so in transportation, he was starting a company now called Open Door. Right. And I joined as part of the founding team. And yeah. Open Door was bringing the real estate transaction online. One of the reasons why it succeeded is that we, we weren't afraid to tackle an operationally complex, capital-intensive business. Yeah. And take me through it, because I vaguely know what Open Door does. But I mean, I think for a lot of folks, especially the folks who are not from the US, who don't have any exposure to it, like they don't necessarily understand that. So like, take us through the Open Door model. And what was the interesting insight and tech that you built around that? Yeah. Open Door makes it easy to buy or sell homes. The first product was if you own a home, you enter your address, you answer a few basic questions, and you get an all cash offer, and you choose your closing date. And Open Door is the best in the world at valuing homes, and it makes an accurate offer and actually buys it from the customer. And when Open Door owns it, then they do renovations and put it back on the market, where then buyers can view the home anytime using the app. It brings liquidity to the market, and it's a more convenient way to sell a home than the alternative, which is where you have people coming through your house, it's uncertain, offers fall through, et cetera. And so Open Door can charge a premium for that. There's multiple parts of the transaction and Open Door now also has title and mortgage and bringing all the different pieces together into one transaction. And there's different, there's different pieces that have value there. Yeah, awesome. Sounds like tech that would be really valuable in lots of places. But so all of those things, you, obviously, it all came together. At some point, clearly, you'd done well at Open Door, and you thought, you know what, I'm going to go and decide to build a car-free city. Like, what is the part that like clicked in your mind about going from like, yep, this is cool. We're doing this with some houses, but we're not going to change the urban form of a country through this. What we saw at Open Door was enormous demand for walkable neighborhoods. And we heard it from customer after customer. What's interesting is that they didn't ask for it by name. The word they used the most often was cute. And when you probe on that, they say they want to have something that's, that's near retail, especially something like a coffee shop. Mm. They want to have something with a sense of community, thoughtful architecture, et cetera, and not loud cars and these kind of things. And there's so little of that on the market. We really only have those homes in places of cities that were built before cars. And so the prices of those have become exorbitant. And we're not building enough walkable housing in the U.S. And so that was when we realized that there's an opportunity to bring walkable neighborhoods back using the mobility technologies of the recent past. 
that to me is, you know, we've had bikes, we've had other technologies for being able to get people around. And I think of, for example, the, the planned neighborhoods of the retirement villages in Florida and things like that. And yet nobody seems to have built it, even though, as you say, you've identified that there was a market opportunity in there. Why is it now? Like, why do you think we can do it now versus before? So around cul-de-sac Tempe, we're on our own light rail stop that's been in yep. place for about 15 years. There's e-bikes and scooters are a recent trend that I think is going to change the world. Yep. There's also ride sharing, car sharing of ways that people can have a slice of a car when they need it. But in general, they're able to get around in so many different ways. And there's also an element of just building in a different way, something that is fantastic. The real estate industry is not known as the most innovative. And so some of the technologies that we're bringing are even older technologies. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as like, it is old tech in some ways. What's old is new again in some ways. I agree with you about the element of adding all of those other transport technologies, because that's really why we've ended up with the urban form that we have for a lot of, especially American cities, is that built around zoning requirements and, and cars and cars with a predominant form of transport. And you can kind of get away with it now, like through mobility as a service and stuff. And obviously we've covered that a lot on the micromobility podcast. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about Tempe because I think Tempe like gives a context to the wider conversation about what you're trying to do and cul-de-sac the company, et cetera. But why did you pick Tempe in the first place? And what did they do as a city that enabled them to like you to be there and do what you're doing? So Tempe is an inner suburb of Phoenix. It's now sort of the center of the metro area. It's 160,000 people. It's right near the airport and Arizona State University, one of the largest universities in the country. And 20 years ago, they did this project called Tempe Town Lake, where there was a dry river and they put up a dam. So now there was a lake. And now that is where uh, the, and now that is a big job center and it's transformed the city of Tempe. Tempe has a thriving job market, proximity to transportation and forward-thinking, action-oriented government. And our site is located directly on the light rail that connects to Phoenix and the airport and Mesa and the rest of Tempe so that it makes it easier for our residents to go car-free. So like, obviously, Tempe is a city, but like, you could have picked anywhere in the country, I assume. Obviously, when you were thinking through site selection, Tempe was attractive because you could see all of those pieces. You've got a light rail stop. You've got a fast growing metro. There's obviously jobs in the area. I assume they're tech jobs. I assume that the people, you know, you can pair that with stuff. Yeah, a lot of them are. Now, actually, Open Door is now headquartered in Tempe. And ironically, Carvana is another large company that's been in Tempe from the beginning. DoorDash has what I believe is their largest office in Tempe and a range of other jobs. So it has a lot of jobs and has a local government that wants to be at the forefront of innovation and moving the needle in real estate and technology. Yeah. And then you managed to acquire 17 acres for the development. Is that a brownfield development? Were there things there before and you'd managed to get the land cleared or was it just sort of land that happened to be right next to the train station? It was mostly empty or vacant buildings. It's a 17 acre parcel right on the light rail. Yeah. Amazing. And then, so what did the city do, you know, in terms of being able to enable this for you? Did you get access to the land and then come to them and say, Hey, we want to, we really want to do this? kind of crazy, what appears to be relatively crazy development relative to everything else. What was special about what Tempe did versus other cities that could have in theory attracted you? So Tempe has been a great partner. Their collaboration has really helped in the approval process, especially the development agreement to design a neighborhood without residential parking spots. They actually had to pass new legislation and it passed unanimously for that. It was important for us to find a city that was the perfect fit and aligned with our vision and where they want to take the city. 
Yeah, awesome. Were, were there any other sort of tax incentives for the development beyond sort of the minimum car parking requirements or, or, or any other incentives, not even necessarily tax, but just other things that they did to help you unlock and make this a possibility? The biggest thing that they did was be great and transparent partners. And we brought together a plan. We talked to the right stakeholders and we knew where we were at all stages of the process. Yeah, awesome. I guess the part that I would say, you know, obviously making it transparent and working with you as a city operator, or like as an operator who's coming into the city, like what was the other thing that you thought, you know, if you were going to other cities, like how can other cities effectively say, hey, look, I really like what you're doing. I want to be able to attract you. Are there other things beyond just being able to effectively process and get get a special legislation around minimum car parking required removed? Or are there other things that you think would really enable kind of next level of, of real estate development for you in terms of what you want to be able to do? So we would tell other cities that now is the right time to build for people, not cars. Yeah. And this is something that can be done. And we want people to look at cul-de-sac Tempe to say, this is where it can work. And we want that to be an inspiration to developers and to cities, because so many times in real estate, people want to look at where something's been done. And that's why we're excited to blaze the trail here. Yeah, awesome. I noticed that you're doing kind of lease only for your first development in Tempe. And my understanding is that you're probably not going to be married to that necessarily for future developments, but why lease? And you know, how do you think about that for the living experience and how folks will feel when they live in an environment like that? Yeah, so for our projects in general, we we're planning to have for sale product. In Tempe, we did lease only. And that's because the most important thing is to build walkable neighborhoods in the US and to get cul-de-sac Tempe successful. And so when we chose leasing, it's because it was a faster path. It would have taken longer to make for sale units. And this gets us to our broader goals faster. Yeah, yeah. When you say that you're aiming for car free, like I'm curious about like, I would imagine, and this is the one thing that we've got in New Zealand down here where I work, obviously, is that we've removed the minimum car parking requirements. Now everybody's complaining about the fact that there are going to be cars, like heaps of cars parked on the side of the road and things like that. So did you have to kind of give guarantees to the city that like, hey, we're not going to have people with cars like right next to the development, development or that was that kind of get them over the line on being able to get that processed? So we shared how things will work at cul-de-sac from the beginning. Concretely, all the residents have in their lease that they can't park anywhere within a quarter of a mile. But with Tempe, many of their goals are things that we can help with, things like sustainability, building 15-minute neighborhoods, strengthening the bike culture, etc. And our hope is for the city of Tempe to look at cul-de-sac as a way to achieve their goals. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally get that. You're obviously going for leasing. You know, you're assuming that you've got an intention to hold on for a long time around that. When you build and maintain real estate, like you want to hold it for a long time if you've got leasing arrangements. That's one thing that we're starting to see around the world is that really kind of quite innovative developments typically are lease or oftentimes will be leasehold. When you think about that, do you think the kind of capital formation is related to how we end up with innovation in urban form? Have we stuffed it up in the past because we've insisted everything had to be owned and that meant that we couldn't have innovation in that space? We had to sell things. I mean, what would be your reflections on that, whether or not that's a calculation for making better cities or not? It seems like the bigger thing that we've done wrong with our cities is that we've built cities around cars and not people. And I think that there's thoughtful ways to build for people, not cars that can be leasing, that can be for sale. There's also different paths that can work. We don't pretend to know exactly the ideal way to make something. Mm. Uh, but we know that that what we're doing now is going great. And uh, we're going to continue to learn and listen to how people react to all the different pieces and continue to make ourselves better. 
Yeah. I imagine a lot of the Europeans are kind of listening to this and saying like, isn't this normal? Like <laughs> most of our European cities is like, and you mentioned Budapest, obviously. And I think about a lot of Amsterdam, et cetera, Copenhagen. So it's really like, is it really just as simple as sort of packaging all of the things that have been done in Europe and working on how to bring them to the US? So it's a mixture of relying on internationally proven urbanism and mobility innovations of the last decade. So e-bikes and micromobility have made this significantly more accessible and remote work is also an important enabler. But also we, we just need to raise the bar for our cities. In the US, we look at something like New York as, as a fantastic city, but there's so many ways that New York could be better as I learned when I was working at the MTA. Mm. We can make the best cities in the world and continue to innovate. Yeah. The, the thing that I've seen when I first saw cul-de-sac, I was like, damn, I want that in New Zealand. Like I would love to <laughs> be able to have that model come down to where we are. And it would be, you know, the challenge you have is that you cannot build all developments everywhere. You know, it's like you can scale what you build as a company, but I'm curious how you think about imitators or generally changing the conversation around things like micromobility neighborhoods and being able to capture some of that value that is created with that change. Yeah, once cities see how much of a success cul-de-sac Tempe is, we hope and expect them to move quickly to innovate. Residents at cul-de-sac Tempe will spend money at local businesses at a higher rate. They won't reduce traffic. They'll add amenities to the area. This is a win-win for cities. Like you mentioned, cul-de-sac can't do everything. This needs to spread everywhere. Yeah. Obviously, you can't necessarily talk about how you think that'll be the case for everywhere, but is there tech that you're developing? I mean, you're obviously a tech company as much as you are a real estate company. Like there's specific stuff that you're developing that's going to be special. Is that going to be the sort of secret source? Or do you think that others will come along and be able to imitate you and kind of be able to do a lot of the same things that you'll be able to do? So not only do we think people will imitate what we're doing at Cul-de-Sac Tempe, we want to be helpful. So people can send me a note and I'll talk about how people can work with cities, what kind of plans can be helpful, talk about designs. For us, it's about building something larger where we can do even more interesting things. So at cul-de-sac Tempe, you can walk from end to end in a few minutes. And so that limits how transformative we can be on the urban form. But at larger scale, we can bring in other innovations and do more. So that's what we're focusing on. And, and technology is used to connect all of the different pieces. Nice. I mean, can you talk through like what a day-to-day experience of someone who lives in the Tempe thing will be like? How how will that be changed by living in somewhere like cul-de-sac versus just like, hey, I live in a, a leased apartment in some random spot in Phoenix? Yeah. So we call it life at your front door where you open the door and you're in a beautiful shared courtyard. There's not a drop of asphalt on the entire property. There's great retail nearby, coffee shop, restaurant, grocery store, and you can get wherever you want using a variety of of modes. And it's a more peaceful existence. It's a healthier existence. It's a more sustainable existence. People are just happier. It sounds super nice. It sounds like a utopian, beautiful place to go and live. How much of the space is public space versus private space on that 17 acres? So it's 55% landscaped space. And as you mentioned, a lot of other projects that come into a city, they add traffic and they have gated communities or they don't add amenities. And for us, we have a park that's open to the public. There's the retail, the central paseos that are open to the public. There's a portion that are the shared courtyards that are for residents only. But this is meant to be something that neighbors love. Yeah, I can imagine. I can see living next door to the side actually be pretty stoked. One of the bigger challenges that I've seen in terms of real estate developers who are trying to do more innovative structures, like they might look at this, right? So someone could do this right next door, but they'd be challenged in how to actually be able to deploy it because they get caught up in like council and regulatory purgatory, especially when they end up kind of making the calculation that time and effort of trying to do something different with the status quo is just not worth it. Like, 
how do you think we increase cities capacity and move towards that kind of flexibility that allows for what you're able to like what you're trying to build in Tempe? So we hope that by executing on cul-de-sac Tempe and talking about how well we worked with the city, that that can be a role model for others. And it's hard to be a first mover as a city. And so this is a concept that others can look to to say that you can build walkable neighborhoods in the U.S. in the 2020s. There's a long history of us trying to build, especially in the kind of new urbanist movement, especially in the past, things like Mazda and UAE or Brasilia or Disney's celebration in Florida. What you've alluded to, which is Fordlandia, which is the, the city that Ford Motor Company tried to build in. And is it Guiana or Brazil? Brazil. Yeah, Brazil. Yeah, right. So we have a long history of trying to master plan developments that end up not being that good. And they're, they're pretty sterile places. They don't have the dynamism or buy-in of the social contract with citizens to be able to make a city evolve and grow endogenously. Like, how do you think about that from your perspective when you're, when you're going and saying, like, we want to build a city? Yeah, you mentioned Orlandia and some of these things, they, they failed partly because of the top-down driven hubris and thinking that they knew the best way to make something. And we know that we don't know the ideal way to make something. Our company value statement is we build cities for people, not cars. And we have a series of statements to each one of those words. And one of our values is that we want to allow things to be bottoms up and to observe the emergent behavior and the ideal city develops that way. And so we don't know exactly how to do everything, but we're going to to do the best that we can and, and watch. Mm. Do you think that there will be models around this where you could, for example, like you build parts of it, but you build a system that allows for others, like a platform? The natural dynamism of a city can emerge. That's the part that I kind of, I, I feel there's a part of it, which is like you require the destruction of previous rounds of capitalism or something like this to, to be able to make a city a really good functioning city. Like the Budapest has been around for a thousand years, if not longer. You know, it's like, it's just cycles and cycles and cycles of people going through and building something and then having that die and building something new on top of that. Do you think that there's an, something that's inherently challenging around having one company try and do that? Or do you think there are ways that you can facilitate there to be that dynamism of, of having multiple different efforts to build inside of one kind of physical space together? So there's things that all cities can do to make their city better. Sometimes a city that's doing a retrofit, things can be harder. In New York, it took them 75 years and $4 billion to build a two-mile subway line. Yeah. And there were a bunch of challenges from getting it approved to even the construction, because when the old lines were built, they didn't mark where lines were and, and things like that. That's one of the reasons why they had to dig so deep. So sometimes retrofitting a city is, is harder than building new. And as you know, the U.S. has such a small percentage of the country that's actually urban. And so there's lots of great places to build new things. But that doesn't mean that existing cities can't innovate. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about Coldtech, the company as well, because I think that that's itself an interesting story. You've obviously raised a Series A led by Koshler with additional capital from Zig, Founders Fund, Linux, and Initialized Capital, which is a big fan of Gary, and for $30 million. So you've managed to convince like expand the team and you, and you've raised, you will raise an additional $2 billion in real estate capital. Like I spend a bunch of time on urbanist Twitter and I was somewhat perplexed that you've managed to convince venture capital that this is something that they should invest in. And the reason that I give that context is like VCs typically come and they say, we're here to invest in moonshots. This appears to be a relatively normal real estate business, even if it's very well run in tech focus. I mean, you've obviously convinced them. So what do they see that other urbanists haven't? So our investors love us because our customers love us. They love us because neighborhoods love us, because cities love us. And they see the traction that cul-de-sac Tempe has and how much demand there is. And it's an enormous market. 
in some senses it is it is that moonshot but this is one of the most important aspects of daily life and they see cul-de-sac as really changing it. Mm. I, I mean, I can certainly see that. Like you look around at like who's made the most money and around the world, oftentimes the, the richest people are the ones who, who made it in real estate and properties. Obviously been a, it, it is a massive market. I totally get that. Um, the, you know, how do you think what you're building is going to be able to be a competitive, like a sustainable competitive advantage? I mean, is it, is it around just getting like NPR amendments or minimum parking requirement amendments to create differentiated form? So not only is it not a sustainable competitive advantage, we don't want it to be. We want every developer to build more walkable neighborhoods, neighborhoods with fewer parking spots or no parking spots. And that's not only good for cities, it's good for us. It's good for our residents if more people are biking and taking transit. Road safety is one of the most important things for our residents. So our retailers, retailers thrive when there's more traffic, more walkable neighborhoods are good for pretty much everyone except car companies. We think of it as we're writing a playbook. We're happy to share that playbook with, with anyone interested in building a walkable future with us. Order Without Design is one of my favorite books. It's done by Alain Batard. Yeah. I know you're a fan of it too. And it talks about how cities kind of emerge chaotically in response to economic opportunity. And, and like they're a hard to design system. It's order, that, but it's, it comes from no design. It's a chaotic system, but it really revolves around these labor markets and, and transport markets, et cetera, for being able to have people get around. Like, how do you think about that for new development? It, it could be, I, I assume something as simple as you just go somewhere where there are good high paying jobs and people want to live. For, for cul-de-sac Tempe, it's a thousand residents, which is a large project, but it, it, it inherently relies on the surrounding area. And that's why the job growth and other things in Tempe were important for choosing that location. As we build larger, we become more and more standalone. And it's important to think about how things start. And that's one of the things we're spending a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, yeah. How have you thought about it with the changing nature of work and how people are obviously, there's a lot of people shifting to be remote. Like I assume it's, if you can live in a really nice neighborhood that kind of gives you a lot of things, it feels like it actually makes your neighborhoods probably more attractive in the age of remote work than necessarily having to be somewhere that's like close to a job per se. Is that something that factors into how you think about what you're doing? Remote work enables people to, to have more freedom to choose where they want to live. And we know that the majority of people, at least in the US, want to live in a walkable neighborhood. So yes, that will help in that, in that sense. But also people that go to work every day want to live in a walkable neighborhood. And there's a reason why prices are so high in New York and San Francisco. And it's because until now, we've largely stopped building new walkable neighborhoods. And so we just need a lot more everywhere for people that travel all different ways or not at all for work. Yeah, totally. We're seeing the emergence of new forms of transport, which at the moment look like autonomous vehicles, electropod vehicles like the Nimbus or the Akimoto, but also EV tolls. Historically, new transport technology, which we're seeing as we go into the electrification of transport, like that has revalued land and real estate as it enables new ways of getting around. How do you think about that when selecting for sites or designing communities? So we look for places that are going to make our neighborhoods work. Obviously, land prices are one of the things that go into it. The big things we see, obviously, when something's on a light rail, that's going to have a higher price. Something that I expect to be changing over time is, is people waking up to just how important e-bikes are and how much that's going to change things. And when commute patterns can take that into account, just like commute patterns change when people started being able to take ride sharing, yeah, that's going to impact prices. But that, it's important for us to stay on top of that. 
Yeah, totally. The other kind of question that I have around that, and, and one that I know that you and I have talked about a lot, if you look back at like the old developments of suburbs and, and or even the way that cities like London developed, for example, a lot of that was enabled because you had a forward thinking government who said, yeah, we're willing to fund and build new public transport out to these areas. And then around that, you get villages that that, that emerge. And in some, some ways, like what you're building is hey, you've got a light rail and you're going to build a village on the on the light rail stop because it connects to the rest of everything else. So it means that you can get around without a car. But we are finding it increasingly challenging to build light rail and or public transport. That's just sort of the nature of things. The, the rate of construction has been really low. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be kind of increasing. We're starting to see a little bit of that happening in the OECD, but it's, it's really nowhere near what we probably need it to be. What are the models that you've seen in the past that you think, is there anything we can bring back of stuff that's worked in the past that you think could, we could make work here? One thing that we're bullish on is bus rapid transit, implemented well by Jaime Lerner in Curitiba in Brazil, where it has all or most of the effectiveness of rail for a fraction of the price. And also from a construction perspective, it can be implemented overnight with cones if we had the will to do it. And that's something that that we see cities adopting more. It's something that I've always been bullish on in my career. Mm. And how can a company like yourselves, because I think about it and go, you know, oftentimes what will happen is that the folks who do public transport aren't necessarily having in the zoning conversations and or like real estate conversations, especially around stations and things like that. Like transit oriented design allows you to happen, but that's a lot of coordination between a lot of agencies and certainly all government focused. Is there anything that you think that private sector can drive? Like as an entrepreneur, someone building in the sector, would you would you have any recommendations around how we think there might be an intervention that could help bring this to fruition? So I, th- I think that public-private partnerships have the ability to drive good outcomes where cities in the private sector can have the same goals and more bike lanes can be good for business. It can be great for local retail, but it can also be great for people to get, getting to jobs. It can also be great for cost of living and health. And so this is a collaboration that we think can can be much better. Yeah, awesome. Hey, and finally, I just happen to know that you run what is, I think, the best e-bike collection that I've ever come across. Can you talk us through like how big that is? Why on earth you started doing it? Things like that. So I've got over 60 e-bikes and this is something that I started buying a couple And then I realized that they were great for group rides and I could loan them out to people. And this was part of showing people how great e-bikes are. And then I realized that when I had six or 10, that now we could go on larger rides because if you require everybody to come with their own bike, it sort of makes it, makes it not happen. And then I saw so many people that I showed bikes to, they would go buy one of their own and then they would start telling their friends, you know, there's there's a woman, Vanessa on our team who has four kids and she's completely changed how she gets around. And now she's got half of her neighborhood has bought e-bikes. And so that really encouraged me. And having more variety allows me to understand more bikes so that we can give great advice to our residents. Of course, now I just do it on Twitter. Anybody can just DM me. I love yeah. talking about bikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the ones that you've, like, you've got quite an extensive collection. I mean, I think you own pretty much every single bike uh, that's for sale in the US that's an e-bike, as far as I can tell. The number is proliferating. It's impossible to own all of them because they're being released so fast, but I have a lot of different ones. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite? So if I can only have one bike, it's the Rad Wagon by Rad Power Bikes. I call that the most important vehicle in America because that's something that can, can replace a car and it's only $2,000. Yeah, yeah. It's an awesome bike. We're really hoping to be able to get Mike Redenbar, who runs a Red Power Bike, on the show at some point. I've been a huge fan of what they've been able to do because they've really brought down the cost of what 
an e-bike is and made it far more accessible to far more people than I think probably any other company at this point. Yeah, Mike, Mike has visited cul-de-sac and we hope that you can sometime soon too. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Are there any other kind of undiscovered bikes that you really rate that aren't kind of common or popular? I'm just very curious. So Rad just released a bike last week or the week before called the Rad Expand, which quickly became the most popular bike in my fleet based upon the quality and price point. But there's so many different use cases of e-bikes that so I wrote this article online of the 11 rules for buying an e-bike and the 11 bikes that I recommend. And there's really different types. So for each different type, I have some recommendations. There's an overall bike, there's a speed demon bike, there's cargo bikes, there's a lightweight bike. I get lots of questions from people that want to take something upstairs. There's the Segway C80, which is something that doesn't have pedals that it's kind of hard to explain, but everybody that tries it loves that thing. Yeah. There's the high-end bikes. As you know, people can spend a lot, and but usually most people get a low-priced bike for their first one, and then they understand the real power of it and how it's a car replacement, and then they, they want another one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How is the bike lane network in Tempe? So the bike lane network... Uh, everywhere can always be better. So the bike lane network in Tempe is the best in Arizona, but we think that that's something that's important and can get significantly better. Tempe now has the best bike lane along the river. They just finished uh, an underpass under this one road. So now you can go all the way to the different parts of most of the different parts of Phoenix on that, including the job centers of Tempe. So the two biggest ways that people will get to work at cul-de-sac will be e-bike and light rail. Oh, awesome. I'm stoked to hear that. Wicked. Well, look, hey, thank you so much for making the time. Like I just, as I mentioned, ever since I'd first come across cul-de-sac, I've just been stoked on on what you guys have been doing. I get your point around you just need to build it and then and you can show it because I think there's so much of challenges that we've seen for a lot of real estate developments around the world is they look really nice in the concept images and that, yeah, but, but there's a really different feel that you get when you just go and can walk around something. I just can't wait to have this finished and that folks can come check it out and just go like, yeah, how do we build this in, in our place? For folks who, who obviously are kind of coming to this new, how would they find you on Twitter? So I'm Ryan M. Johnson on Twitter. Cul-de-sac is at cul-de-sac. We're cul-de-sac.com. We're also the largest real estate related account on TikTok. Yeah. Oh, and- are you? I didn't even. Okay. I'm not on TikTok, but I clearly should be. This is great. How has that been from a marketing perspective? I'm, just, I'm so curious. It's a growing channel and it's a different type of content, but that's been good for us to, to spread the word. Yeah. And we do a number of different things. There's something called Little Choya on the construction site. And by the way, we just started public construction tours last week. We're doing it again tomorrow. We're going to do it ongoing. So have people reach out to us and we'll set them up for a construction tour. We also have a retail market that we call Little Choya, and we're, we're going to have Little Choya at cul-de-sac. It's where we'll have food trucks and that, that, that sort of thing and other local retail. But it's actually open now on the side of the construction site that hasn't been built yet. And so we do that every Thursday. Oh, cool. Um, Is that like a farmer's market equivalent there. or something? Yeah, it's got local retail, some of its food. There's food trucks. Yeah. We do different events. It's salsa and bachata night tomorrow. Oh, cool. Okay, marvelous. Well, uh, anybody who's in the area, you should go check that out. Yeah, I'd be stoked to finally get a chance to come down and see you. Hopefully, I'll be able to do that later on this year. So looking, yeah. forward, to, looking forward to being there with you. The way that we do it is that it costs $5 to park. Or if you come without a car, you actually get paid $5. It's a token that, that you can use for the, the food trucks in the market. Oh, awesome. What a great idea. <laughs> Marvelous. Well, thank you, Ryan, so much and really, really appreciate your time. Looking forward to hopefully having you on in the future when we're talking about the next, well, when you can announce your car-free city and, and we can talk about the nature of the business at that point. This has been great. 